Well, as you can all tell, I'm not Brian. He is down with the youth tonight, so I would say I got the better end of the deal. <laughs> We're going to look at a passage tonight from Luke, and this is really the first we've sort of discussed Luke in this series. We've, we've done Matthew and Mark, and I'm not sure how much Brian will go into the background of Luke. I just want to touch on a few simple things. The first being, when we think of Luke, first off, Luke and Acts were to go, to, were to go together. We look at the life, death, and resurrection of Christ in Luke, and it immediately carries over into the foundations of the church. And Luke was not an eyewitness to these events at all, but being very educated and he went around and basically performed a, a whole lot of interviews, which I, I love that concept, which is, in my opinion, why when we, we read Christ's birth, we read the Christ story, what do we read? We read Luke. Because I would imagine that Luke sat down with Mary and got the whole story on a personal level, as he has done with many other individuals throughout the book. And I think that's one of the reasons, number one, why Luke is one of my favorite, if not the favorite, book of the Bible that I have, and which is why this story that we're going to look at tonight in Luke 24 is probably my favorite story within the whole Bible. And when uh, Brian told me I was going to be doing this, I was really excited. I really like this. It's so unique and different and Let's start with verse 13, and I'm going to read through verse 24. Now behold, two of them were traveling that same day to a village called Emmaus, which was seven miles from Jerusalem. And they talked together of all these things which had happened. And so it was while they conversed and reasoned that Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were restrained so that they did not know him. And he said to them, What kind of conversation is this that you have with one another as you walk and are sad? Then the one whose name was Cleopas answered and said to him, Are you the only stranger in Jerusalem? And have you not known the things which happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? So they said to him, The things concerning Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet, mighty indeed in word before God and all the people, and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, besides all this, today is the third day since these things happened. Yes, and certain women of our company who arrived at the tomb early astonished us. When they did not find his body, they came saying that they had also seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. And certain of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. So when we last left off, 
with Brian, we had gone through all the way up to the crucifixion and burial of, of Jesus Christ. And a string of events have since happened. It's three days later. And some of those events that have happened, first off, we know that Mary Magdalene was the very first to arrive at the tomb, only to find it empty. And she immediately runs off to notify Peter and John, who were probably living or staying close by. Another group of women arrive a little bit later, and there's an angel. And the angel tells them he has risen. And the women are instructed to inform the disciples, especially Peter, that Jesus will meet them in Galilee. Meanwhile, Mary's gotten a hold of Peter and John, and they show up at the tomb. And they enter the tomb only to find empty linen cloths. Peter and John then probably went on to find the other disciples to tell them that they've noticed with their own eyes that Jesus is no longer in his tomb. When Mary Magdalene comes back alone, and there she sees Jesus personally. She goes to inform the disciples that she's seen Jesus, and they don't believe her. The other group of women, the ones that had been at the tomb earlier that day, Jesus also appears to them. And they too are instructed to inform the disciples of his resurrection. And once again, the disciples don't believe him. So here we are. We've got the disciples and the other followers of Jesus. They're saddened. They're confused. And Peter and John have seen firsthand that Jesus isn't in that tomb anymore. And yet despite all of Christ's earlier prophecy, his earlier words, and the fact that he's no longer in the tomb, his followers, his disciples, still don't get it. And that's where tonight's passage picks up. So at some point in time, these two followers of Jesus start heading home to Emmaus. And Emmaus, as I, I noted up here, was about seven and a half miles north, possibly, of Jerusalem. And really, this is the only passage in the Bible that speaks of Emmaus. It's found nowhere else. And so legends have grown. And during the Crusades, it was determined that the modern village of Kubeba was Emmaus. But Again, we really have no idea where it was. And it's quite obvious that these men have been in town for quite some time because it says they'd been a witness to all of the events of the Passion Week. And so here they are, back to Jerusalem, heading up the road when a third individual shows up. It's a resurrected Jesus. And he continues to journey on with them. But the thing is, is through a miracle, they've been prevented from recognizing Jesus. Mark 16, 12, the only really other section of verses, 12 and 13 are the only other verses in the Bible that even come close to describing the events that are happening in tonight's passage, says that he was in a 
different form. And that's led to speculation that, oh, well, he didn't really look like he looked when he was on the earth. He was in disguise. But really what the translation means and what this wording is telling us is that it's a miracle. God's performing a miracle so that these two individuals don't recognize Jesus as he walks along with them. Why? Why was Jesus preventing them from recognizing him? And that's something that I'll get to at the end of tonight's verses. Because I can tell you that nowhere in the Bible does it specifically say, oh, by the way, this is why Jesus did this. But I think we're going to learn why. So Jesus approaches them, and what's he saying? What, what are you guys, what are you talking about? And uh, why are you so sad? I remember years ago in high school, watching my high school team in basketball play an arch rival, a, a school we would come so close to beating, but we could never beat. And here we are, they've scored a basket with about two seconds on the clock, and we're down by two, and it looks like it's over. And their fans are going crazy, and our fans are on the edge of their seats. We've got two seconds, an inbounds pass, and sure enough, three-pointer from the corner, goes in at the buzzer, and we win the game. And you could see their fans go from up here to down here. And this is what these two followers went through. A week earlier, they were celebrating the fact that their Messiah is riding on a donkey coming, a colt coming into Jerusalem throwing palm branches and clothing down. This is their king. And now, all of that appears, all of those wishes appear to have been dashed. As to why they're sad, I mean, I think it's pretty apparent. It's their, their lack of faith. This, is, this was not something that Christ hid, that he was going to die and that he was going to come alive again. And yet, again and again and again, his followers throughout his ministry just didn't get it. And when the going got tough, their faith got dashed, and now they're just trying to escape Jerusalem and go home. Now, Luke identifies one of these disciples, one of these followers, as Cleopas. The second disciple is, um, he's never identified. We don't know who it is. But according to Christian lore, I don't normally do this, but I found it interesting. And it's amazing what you can find in all, the Oxford uh, Bible Dictionary and uh, my favorite, Wikipedia, is when you look at Cleopas, Christian lore claims that he is the brother of Joseph. So he would be Jesus' half-uncle, according to some. And yet again, nowhere in the Bible does it say that. It's interesting how people come up with these ideas. But what really stuck out that I thought was really interesting is that Cleopas is the masculine of Cleopatra. I don't know why I found that interesting, but I just did. 
And so here's Jesus asking, hey, why are you guys so sad? And their response is, <laughs> I love their response. I can just see them with a gaping mouth and face looking at Jesus saying, are you the only one in town who doesn't know what happened this past week? I mean, Christ's entry, trial, and crucifixion was a big deal in Jerusalem. It was major news. And the fact that this so-called traveler, this, this visitor, has no idea what happened has already made him a little bit suspect in their eyes. And so they go on, and they describe Jesus... I like this part. They describe Jesus as a prophet. It says, when he says to them, what things, they say to him, the things concerning Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet, mighty indeed in word before God and all the people. And this reminds me, back in Mark, when Jesus and the disciples are entering the Caesarea Philippi region, Jesus turns to them and what's he asked them? Who do men say that I am? And one of the examples of what people were calling Jesus was prophet. And so again, we've got these two followers of Jesus who still didn't quite get what his ministry was all about, who he really was. And they then go on to blame who? The chief priests and the rulers for his capture and his crucifixion. You know, they'd hoped that Jesus was a Messiah who would redeem the Jews from the Romans. They were hoping that he would be this incredible military leader who would inspire and raise up a Jewish army to shake off the chains of oppression from the Romans and once again become a powerhouse like they'd been centuries before. That was their hope. That was their desire. They were hoping he would redeem them from the Romans. And when I look at this, I think, man, weren't they thinking small? Because we know that eventually, yes, there is redemption, but it's not this political redemption. It's a redemption of our life over death. These two men were thinking far, far too small. And so we look here then in verse 22 where they decide that they're going to tell them that some, some women then, some women went to the tomb of Jesus and they say, they claim that he's not there. In fact, an angel or angels told them that, that Jesus was alive. But because it was women telling us this, we decided we better send a couple of our own men. So luckily Peter and John were there and they too found the tomb empty. But there weren't any angels. And there wasn't any Jesus. I, I like the reasoning that 
Bible scholars will give to why Jesus first appeared to Mary Magdalene and a group of women. And that's because in a court of law, nobody would believe what a woman said or their, their words were, were not worthy of bringing to court. And here comes Christ giving worth to their words. They're the first to see him. And yet the disciples, his followers, the men that traveled with him, the men that would go on to found the church, they're the ones who initially have the doubt. So let's start again with verse 25. Then he, being Jesus, said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into glory? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Then they drew near to the village where they were going, and he indicated that he would have gone farther. But they constrained him, saying, Abide with us, for it's toward evening, and the day is far spent. And he went in to stay with them. Now it came to pass, as he sat at the table with them, that he took bread, blessed, and broke it, and gave it to them. Then their eyes were opened and they knew him, and he vanished from their sight. And they said to one another, Did not our heart burn within us while he talked with us on the road, and while he opened the scriptures to us? So they rose up that very hour and returned to Jerusalem, and found the eleven, and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord is risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. And they told about the things that had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of bread. In verse 25, Jesus completely chastises their lack of faith. He calls them, oh, foolish ones. And at that time, to refer to anyone as foolish was an extreme insult. And here is Christ to show the extremeness of their lack of faith, calling them, oh, foolish ones. He then refers to them as slow of heart. The Hebrew concept of the heart was that it was the seat of intelligence. If you are an intelligent person, you had a strong and open and mighty heart. And here now, he's also now discussing their lack of intelligence and what their lack of faith has brought to them. I'm going to turn real fast to John 12, 35 through 38. And while I'm doing that, I want to point out that this verse right here. This is the point of the entirety of this story. 
calling them fools for their lack of faith. John 12, 35 through 38 says, Then Jesus said to them, A little while longer the light is with you. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. He who walks in darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. These things Jesus spoke and departed and was hidden from them. Jesus is telling them at the time, I'm not going to be here that long. Walk with me. Learn with me. And that's the importance. These men walked with him, but did they learn of him? He then goes on to ask this rhetorical question. Didn't Jesus have to suffer all this in order to enter his glory? We look at Matthew 20, 17 through 19, the words of Jesus himself. Now Jesus going up to Jerusalem took the 12 disciples aside on the road and said to them, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and to the scribes and they will condemn him to death and deliver him to the Gentiles to mock and to scourge and to crucify. And the third day he will rise again. I find it interesting at the beginning of this when they're first talking with Jesus and they're talking about the woe is me attitude that they have and why they're so sad. They specifically mention that Jesus has been dead for three days. As if that's it, done, going home. And <laughs> we look and almost verbatim, Jesus is telling them exactly what's going to happen. And on the third day, he would rise again. It's estimated that at some point in time when they left Jerusalem, it was right about the time that Peter and John mentioned, hey, Jesus is no longer in the tomb. We're scared. We're confused. What's going on? And that's when these two disciples decided maybe it's about high time we got out of this town because I don't know what's going to happen to the followers of Jesus in the coming days. And off they go. Jesus then begins going through the Old Testament, starting with the book of Moses, the books of Moses, and he's going through all of the various books of the prophets, almost the entirety of our modern-day Old Testament. What I find fascinating is, and I wrote it down here, so we know that it's about seven and a half miles from Jerusalem to Emmaus. It's estimated walking like this, it takes about... I don't know, 20-minute miles, but you're also in some rough terrain. So we're looking at at least three hours. Three hours that these followers get a one-on-one -on -one lesson of the Old Testament from Christ himself. Explaining how the Old Testament is a direction arrow pointing to the New Testament and the Messiah and eternal life. And I think of some of the, th the ideas of, in, you know, Isaiah 53, 3, Messiah will be rejected. I'm sure he pointed that out. 53, 5 through 9, the Messiah will be killed as a sacrifice for sins. I'm sure he's pointing that out. Isaiah 53, 7, the Messiah will be silent against his accusers. 
Isaiah 53, 11 through 12, the Messiah would not stay dead. When we look at Matthew 7 and 28 through 29, it talks about how the people were amazed at the teaching of Jesus in the synagogue because he taught like none other, because he taught as one who has authority. And I just imagine this eternal being of Jesus Christ. We, we love Christmas, and we get into the concept of this little baby born in a manger and how frail and innocent he is as a human being. He's an eternal deity. We think of God the Father standing in heaven with this son next to him. And was like, you know, my son and I you know, standing on the porch ready to go out to school for the day. We forget that Christ is not this subservient being to God. He is equal to God. And here he is teaching them, teaching them about the Old Testament. And you'll notice how it just talks about he taught from Scripture. He wasn't giving them any new revelation. He wasn't writing his own book of the Bible. He would have had total authority to do that. But he didn't need to do that. Because the Scripture is the Word of God. And I cannot stress enough that those same Scriptures that Jesus was teaching are the same scriptures that most of us have right now in front of it, us. These are the words of God. And here's Christ giving them to these two disciples. It's kind of interesting. Um, I came across this number that about 3,800 times in scripture, it says the phrase either God said or the Lord said. And it's amazing how often when we start reading Scripture that it is as if God is talking to us and we learn new things. It's not new revelation. It's the Holy Spirit working through us, helping us to understand new concepts that are in here. So again, for two to three hours, he's teaching them one-on-one. Eventually, though, as, as all trips do, this trip comes to an end. And Jesus continues on his way. But the other two men say, whoa, whoa, it's getting late. Come, stay with us. And I, I often wonder, if you had the greatest Bible teacher ever, with you for three hours, wouldn't you want him around even longer? So Jesus agrees, and he stays. And it says that as they sat down to dinner, Jesus took the bread, he blessed the bread, he broke it, and then he passed it out. And the first thought that comes to mind is, of course, the Lord's Supper. Going through the exact same things that he did on the night before his crucifixion. Only this time, it is a more joyous occasion. 
But what I think about is found also in John 6, starting with verse 30. Therefore they said to him, What sign will you perform then, that we may see it and believe you? What work will you do? Our fathers ate the manna in the desert. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. And Jesus said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, Moses did not give you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And they said to him, Lord, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will by no means cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of the Father who sent me that of all he has given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up at the last day. And this is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. We find out soon as soon as these two men receive the bread from Jesus, they are able to immediately recognize him. And as soon as they recognize him, he's gone, vanishes into thin air. And I can just imagine, just there had, there had got to be a, a few moments where they just sat there in awe. Maybe looking at each other, looking back to where Jesus sat, looking at each other back to where Jesus sat. Because as soon as they recognized who it was, and all that shock and joy and awe they would experience, he's gone. He's gone. Yes. Yes. Not necessarily that he was not ghost, but that was evidence at that time. It was. He did not eat. He didn't eat. It was as soon as he handed them that bread, he disappeared. And we do know that at another point in time, he's going to appear to disciples. They're going to freak out. They're going to claim that he's a spirit, he's a ghost, and he's going to eat some fish, right? To prove that he is still a, in human form. And we're going to look at a bookend that does occur here, but it's sort of similar where... It's similar, but it's a little bit different where, yes, he did not eat. And I think that's something to pay attention to as to what he's trying to tell them. Because it didn't take him breaking the bread and handing it to them in a physical sense, right? I mean, 
I guess a spirit or a ghost could do that. <laughs> he never ate it. And then, of course, the flip side, he disappears. He's gone. And the reaction of these disciples is completely, completely priceless. Turn back here. Yes. And I love what they say to one another in verse 32. One of my all-time favorite verses in the Bible and one of my all-time favorite stories in the Bible. Did not our heart burn within us while he talked with us on the road and while he opened the scriptures to us? First off, I, I, I would hope that anytime I read the Word of God that my heart burns just like theirs did. But sometimes through lack of concentration, I've got all these other things I'm thinking about, I'm sure we can all relate. We don't get that. We don't get that fire. And I think of the Holy Spirit in this instance when it talks about how our hearts burned when He taught us and talk to us on the road. In John 14, verse 26, it says, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I said to you. Again, Jesus wasn't teaching any divine new revelation. He was just teaching the word of God that they already had in their possession. And that's what the Holy Spirit does with us when we read the word of God. And I think of this burning and the fire. And it reminds me, number one, of the Old Testament, God's presence and that pillar of fire. But I also think of Romans 8 9. It talks about how you're not in the flesh, but the Spirit of God, if indeed it dwells in you. So fire represents God's presence, and I also think of how it represents purity and God's purity. And we talk about the, the purifying fire. And I think about Romans 15, 16, where it specifically talks about how the Holy Spirit continually works to sanctify us, purify us, make us worthy in the eyes of God. And like Melanie said, boom, they got up immediately. That very instance, they get back up, turn around, and make that three-hour trip back to Jerusalem. And as soon as they get back, they too are one of the first to spread that, that new good news, that new gospel, that he is alive. And they find the disciples and the others gathered together. The Bible here tells us that they went to tell the 11. Well, they expected 11. But remember, Thomas is nowhere to be found. He's not going to show up for several more days. And what's the answer? The Lord is risen indeed, and he's appeared to Simon. 
So at some point in time, over the next three hours, after he has vanished from their sight, we find out that Jesus has at some point in time spoken with Simon, which is going to be kind of strange looking at their reaction when Jesus does appear again. And then finally, these two disciples start relating their entire story. I'm sure from the moment they left Jerusalem to the moment they got to Emmaus to the moment they realized who it was they were talking about or talking with and what he told them and how their hearts burned. And then here's the other issue. They specifically mentioned that they recognized him after the breaking of bread, which is a symbolic gesture of Christ. And I mentioned earlier about why I believe that these two disciples, followers, were restrained from recognizing Jesus. I would have us first think back to some of these other individuals that uh, Christ has already or will appear to. We, we have Mary Magdalene, but what was the scenario that he appeared to her in. She's in devastated sadness, confused, lost, worried. We think of these two disciples on the road. We know, first off, their countenance was sad. Jesus himself says, why are you so sad? He appears to the 11 disciples. Eventually, they don't quite recognize him at first. Why? Well, they're, they're confused. Where's Jesus? Where's his body? And I'm sure they're scared. They're, they're wanted men right now in Jerusalem as followers of Jesus. So I would say that the reason they were restrained from recognizing Jesus is they were initially, they're preoccupied in their own emotions, in their own feelings. And I mean, isn't that how we are as well? We get caught up in the, the things of life. We've, we've got work. We've got bills to pay. We've got kids to keep out of the emergency room. I mean, we, we have a lot going on to the point where often we, too, forget the face of Christ. What's that? I wouldn't know. I, I would say this. I, I think... It's late afternoon, and the reason I say this is we, we know that Mary Magdalene got to the tomb before sunlight, and it says she's supposed to be meeting these other women. Well, they showed up a little bit later. So this whole back and forth of finding the disciples, etc., maybe a couple of hours, three hours, gets light there around 6 o'clock in the morning. These gentlemen would have been on the road to Emmaus maybe no later than 10, they get to Emmaus three hours later or so. They're going to eat something. Jesus disappears, and immediately they're back, you know, going out again. So it, it, it very well could have been late, but it, it looks like in the narrative of the story, it might have just been late afternoon, not quite, you know, supper time. Exactly. You know, and I mean, I would imagine, too, it's going to take a little bit longer to walk seven and a half miles back you're already tired, 
you've already walked seven and a half miles and you're going to turn around and, and, and go back. So I could imagine that might take them a little bit, a little bit longer. And I'll finish with the, these words from Peter. And I find it, you know, just fantastic that these are the words coming out of Peter's mouth. When we think of followers post-crucifixion that might not exactly have had the faith that was necessary, we think of, of Peter. He's the one, after all, that specifically denied his relationship with Christ, which is why I find it amazing and so encouraging that what happens, what does the angel tell Mary Magdalene? Or I should say, yeah, tells Mary, go find the disciples. Tell them he'll meet them in Galilee. Oh, especially Peter. And then we do know that eventually Peter and, and Jesus will appear individually to Peter as well. But in 1 Peter 5, 6 through 7, we'll close with this verse, these verses. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your cares upon him, for he cares for you. Any other questions, comments, input? Still got a couple minutes. All right, I'll close this out in prayer. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the word of God that we can go to it no matter what's going on in our lives, Lord. And I would ask that we would do that, that we would just come to you in prayer and through your word and that the Holy Spirit would continually be used to teach us. In your name, amen. Thank you.